Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to go, uh, I think this is going to be the last um, um, message in this series that we've been teaching on the name of Jesus, but um, we're going to start one more time in John chapter 14. We're going to look through a couple of verses in, uh, several verses in John 14, 15, and 16 relative to the name of Jesus and what it, what it means to us. Um, as we've said before many times, uh, John is writing these words uh, many years after, some 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's at the end of John's life. He's in his 90s, uh, maybe as old as 95 years of age. Uh, everybody that was a part of the original 12 is uh, long since gone. The rest of the New Testament has been written with the exception of the book of Revelation, which John will write some uh, short time after these words. And uh, so he's aware of the other Gospels. Uh, he's aware of uh, the accounts that the other gospel writers had delivered about Jesus and his life. And John seems to be impressed by the Holy Ghost at the end of his life. After he's had an opportunity to live um, many, many years, decades, uh, walking as a Christian and seeing the different uh, changes that have been uh, taking place uh, through the world and, and through the church. Uh, this is uh, the time he writes the temple in Jerusalem has already been destroyed as was prophesied by Jesus when he was here. And so the Holy Ghost seems to impress upon John to, to fill in the blanks, to tell us what the other writers didn't tell us. And as such, the last night that Jesus spent with his disciples at what uh, we know of as the Last Supper, John spends n virtually no time talking about the elements, talking about the communion uh, process that, uh, that Jesus led them through because the other gospel writers cover that very well. Instead, John tells us what Jesus said about how things would change because he's going to the Father. It's uh, just going to be a matter of a few hours before he's taken captive and the, um, the crucifixion process begins, the beating in um, Herod's court, uh, in Pilate's court, excuse me, and being sent to Herod and, and, uh, and so forth. Some of the details that the other gospel writers give us about that uh, experience, John does not. But he focuses a great deal on what Jesus said about how things were going to be different and, and what the, the reasons, literally the reasons for why he's going to the Father. Now, in John chapter 14, we'll start there. Jesus says in verse 12, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, or in my name, in other words, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus deliver authority to heal, uh, to cast out devils and to heal sickness and disease to these same people he's talking to? Haven't they for the last two years, two of his three years of ministry, been doing miraculous works? Aren't these the guys that he sent into the cities two by two before he would get there to tell them and, and gave them direction to heal the sick and say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you and so forth? Haven't they been doing the works of Jesus? Well, he's talking about something different. He's telling them that it's going to be a different work. He's telling them that it's going to be a different position that they're going to have because he's going to the Father. Please keep that in mind. He's not just saying, now don't worry guys, healing works will continue after I'm gone. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it'll be different now. I've delivered to you short-term authority. I've delegated authority to you over sickness and disease and to cast out devils for a short period of time, but it's going to be different now. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he that believeth on me, we know that to mean salvation. He that believes in my name, he that makes Jesus the Lord of his life, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. 
Because I go unto my Father. Because I go unto my Father. See, notice the connection. He's saying, because I'm going to make a place for you. He starts off in the first part of chapter 14 by saying, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Well, what place is he talking about? So many times uh, people get hung up on the, the King James translation where it says, in my house there are many mansions. The word mansions doesn't mean house. It means abiding place. It means places to live. We think of things in a natural context, and the translators did too. So they translated it mansions. Folks, the idea that Jesus could create the earth in six days and everything that's there, but it's taken him over 2,000 years to build houses, is just stupid. And that's what I was taught as a kid in Sunday school. Well, Jesus is building you a mansion. As soon as he gets all the mansions built, he's going to come back for us. Seriously? I'm thinking he's making yours too big if it's taking him this long. It's just ludicrous. No, he's not talking about that. He says, he even goes further and says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you may, that where I am, you may be also. He doesn't say that where I'm going, you may be. He's talking about relationship. Where I am, the place that I have with the Father now, the Father in me and me in him, the place that I have in the Father now, there you will be also. He's talking about making a place for you through salvation. Not talking about building houses in heaven. So here when he says... He that believeth in me or in my name, they're one and the same thing. Those are synonymous terms in the scripture. He that believeth in me or in my name, the works that I do shall he do also, and even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. He's literally saying this relationship with the Father that I'm going to prepare for you and make a way for you to enter into is going to create works and miracles and signs and wonders that you've never even seen yet. Stuff that was greater than what I did. How is this going to take place? Verse 13. And whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let me say one more time in this series, this word ask does not mean request. He's not talking about you praying about something. The word ask means to call for, require, or demand. I, For clarification, I use the word speak and uh, to substitute the word speak for it because you can't call for something unless you speak it out. You can't require something unless you speak it. You can't demand something unless you speak it. He's not talking about prayer. He's talking about the place that you have in the Father and the authority that that brings to your words. The works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do, because I go unto my Father, and whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please notice Jesus is saying that if Jesus knew what he was talking about, you decide for yourself. But if Jesus knew what he's talking about, he said, the sky's the limit as long as God is glorified. Whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He goes even further. Verse 14, he said, if you shall ask, same word, speak. If you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. He's talking about a place of relationship that we have with God. A relationship that enables our words to be carried out by Jesus himself. Jesus is in no way is saying I'm ending my work when I go to the Father. He's simply saying I'll continue the work through your words. Notice in chapter 15. 
Verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me, that's relationship. And my words abide in you, that's fellowship. That's walking by faith. A lot of times people want to know, how can I get closer to God? There's only one way, and that's through his word. There's only one way. It's not even through prayer. Now, prayer is great. Prayer can establish fellowship if you're living by the word. But if you're just praying without living according to what the word says, walking by faith instead of your five physical senses, then prayer will just be a time where the Holy Ghost tries to tell you you need to start living by the word. So prayer can become a time of condemnation, conviction. Not that God is condemning you, but your own heart will condemn you because you know something's wrong. That's why prayer is not an ex- uh, a pleasant experience for so many Christians, so many believers. So Jesus said, here's the two qualifications. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will. Same word, ask. Call for a required demand. You shall speak what you will. And it shall be done unto you. Notice he does not say according to God's will. Because if you're walking according to the word, if the word's living in you, if you're walking by faith, then everything you do is going to be based on the word of God, which is his will revealed. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall speak what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein, in this manner, through this, th- through this means, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Now, we just read in chapter 14 and verse uh, 13, if whatsoever you shall speak in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Here again, he says in verse 8 of chapter 15, he said, herein, in this manner, you speaking what you will, and it be done unto you, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. It's a, it's a hard thing for us to accept because the natural mind thinks in such a, an opposite direction. But Jesus, if he knew what he's talking about, Jesus said that God is glorified when your words come to pass. Most of the time we think that we're working against God. God's got one plan in mind. We've got another plan in mind. And we're trying to get our way to come. We're trying to get our way to work. It's not what Jesus said. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you and God are on the same page. God's glorified when your words come to pass. Notice in verse 16. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. He's not talking about a place of ministry. He's talking about chosen and ordained to be children of God. Well, the Bible says God has predestined the whole world to be children of God. That's why Jesus died for the, uh, was sacrificed, slain for the, from the foundations of the world. He died for the sins of all of mankind. God predestined, he chose, he ordained for all of mankind to be, to be uh, saved, to be his children. Well, then why doesn't everybody get saved? Because it's up to them. It's their will that decides, not God's. God doesn't force anybody against their will. You have to exercise your will to enter into the family of God. How do you do that? By speaking Jesus as your Lord and Savior. By calling for Jesus to be your Lord. By requiring or putting a demand on the sacrifice that he made through his death, burial, and resurrection. And you, through your words, speaking That Jesus is your Lord. Confessing Jesus as your Lord. And that confession is made before you're ever saved. It's almost like Jesus is talking about the same thing, isn't it? You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. And what fruit is he talking about? Well, verse 8 just said that fruit was your words coming to pass. 
I wonder if he's changed subjects. No, he's talking about the same thing. You've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. In other words, that your word should come to pass. That whatsoever you shall ask, speak, same word, whatsoever you shall speak of, or literally to the Father, in my name he may give it to you. So notice he's talking about the same fruit being born in verse 16 as he is in verse 8. Your words coming to pass. Your words coming to pass. Chapter 16, verse 23. Jesus said, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. Now this word ask is a different word. This word ask means to, to request. It literally is translated a few verses down the, uh, a few verses further in this chapter as the word pray. He's saying, and in that day, the day of his resurrection, your day and my day, the day of the church, you shall not pray to me. You shall ask me nothing. One translation says, uh, you shall ask me no more questions. But since you're not going to be asking me, you're not going to be making requests of me. For the last three years, that's what they've been doing. Anything they need to know, they've been asking him. He said, that's not the way it's going to work from now on. Because I'm going to the Father, things are changing. And in that day, you shall ask or request of me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask. This word ask is to call for required demand. Speak. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have you asked, spoken, nothing in my name. Ask, speak. And you shall receive that your joy may be full. Now, I say this almost every time we read this verse of Scripture, but I think it bears repetition because it, it really needs to be considered. What area of your life is your joy, would your joy not be made full by display of God's power to fix the problem? Jesus said, speak, use your words. Place a demand on the relationship that you have that I'm making for you with the Father. With the word abiding in you. Speak what you will and it shall be done. Speak to the Father and he'll give it to you. Speak so that your joy may be full. It's almost like Jesus doesn't want you to be sad in any area. It's almost like Jesus doesn't want you to be deficient in any area. Now I realize to some folks that sounds too good to be true. But that's what Jesus said. It's exactly what he said. Now why is this? Why is he telling us these things? Why is he telling us these truths? He's telling us because things are about to change. He's saying even though they had no concept, even though they didn't understand, he did. And so he's giving them a heads up. I'm sure John looking back thought 60 years earlier when he heard Jesus speak those words, how ignorant he was of what really was going to take place. Now, 60 years later, he's looking back and saying, wow, he tried to tell us. He tried to clue us in before it happened. He told us that because he's going to the Father, we would have a place with God just like Jesus had a place with God. Not servants any more than Jesus was a servant, but sons just like Jesus was the son of God. And here's the benefit of that relationship. Whatever we say comes to pass. Now again, so many times the devil will try to bring thoughts and and, uh, worries to people. Try to bring condemnation. Saying, yeah, how do you know your words are going to be in line with God? How do you know you're not going to be working against the will of God? Well, if the word is abiding in you, you can be operating against the will of God. 
That's why he put that as a qualifier. Now, why is this? Why is this the, the case? Why did Jesus take such um, uh, time and effort to, to, to describe what was going to take place? Why didn't he just let it happen? Why didn't he just say, well, you know, you guys, when you wake up three days from now, things will be different, and boy, you've got a lot to learn. Why didn't he leave it up to them? Why was he trying to tell them so that they'd have a point of reference? So that they'd have an understanding. This is what he said. Now we understand what he means. Now, in order to understand this, it, it uh, seems to me that it's, it's helpful to realize what God's original plan was. We know in Genesis chapter 1, when the Bible tells us about God recreating the earth, beginning in verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, And the earth was, literally became, without form and void. God didn't create the earth without form and void. Something happened between the time God created the heavens and the earth to when it became without form and void. God doesn't make stuff that tears up. Something had to intervene. Something had to get involved to destroy what God originally created, whatever that was. And we can speculate, and and the Bible gives us a few clues about some things. But whatever it was, something had to intervene to change it from the way that God originally created it. But he looks upon the face of the deep and the darkness that covered the earth, and he says, he speaks creation. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be stars in the heavens, and there were. Let there be a sun to, get, to rule the night, or to rule the day, and a moon to rule the night. And it was, just like he said. Over and over and over again, God created, made something, formed something. I, I, we use the word created literally, uh, casually, and it's not really created because it wasn't like anything, nothing was there. See, creation is when there is nothing, something is produced. But over and over again, it said God formed the heavens. God formed this. God formed that. He took something that was there and made it into what he wanted it to be. How did he do that? With his words. Then in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. One translation says, or literal, the literal meaning of likeness is an exact duplication in kind. Now, the law of Genesis is this, folks. The law of Genesis is that everything produces after its own kind. Over and over again, it says that when God created or formed something, he made it to create after its own kind. It talks about the seed of the fruit of the trees that he created uh, being in itself. In other words, everything produces after its own kind. That's the law of Genesis. The law of Genesis is that everything duplicates after its own nature. And God said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. In other words, after our kind. An exact duplication in kind. And then it tells why he did that. He said, and let them have dominion over the earth and over all that we've created. And so he put man in the Garden of Eden. He created him, formed his body from the dust of the earth, breathed in him the breath of life, and then gave him a task. He gave him a job. He gave him responsibilities. He said, guard and protect the earth. This is your place. This is your home. This is, it belongs to me, but I'm putting you in charge of it. Well, the only thing that he warned him against was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the days that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, he's not talking about physical death because Adam didn't die for 930 years after he ate. So what death is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual death. See, before Adam fell, God was the source of his information. There was no school for him to go to. There was nobody to teach him except God himself. And so every bit of the information that Adam received, he received from God himself. In other words, we could say it this way. We could say 
to give some kind of equivalence or, or relative point for us, we could say Adam learned by the word of God. He learned everything that he needed to know by the word of God. Not by school. I'm not against education. But education at the expense of spiritual development is a waste of time. You've got a lot of educated fools out there. Because they've learned a lot from school, but that's all they know is what school can teach you. And whether you know this or not, everything you've ever learned in school, you've learned from your five physical senses. That's all school has to teach you. School teaches about the world around us based on the experience of our five physical senses. Well, if your five physical senses is all that there is, then what's the meaning of the world itself? Why is there a hunger on the inside of man for something greater? Every culture, it's an interesting thing, every culture, every nation on the face of the earth, every peoples on the face of the earth has a longing on the inside, some kind of a, a gnawing at them on the inside that they are fallen from some greater position, earlier position, and they have a desire to return to that. Every culture has that. Who gave that to them? Where'd that come from? Did somebody travel the earth many, many millions of years ago and put this in the heart of men? Why is it there? It's there because of the way God created man. God created man to have dominion and man fell from that place of dominion. Now, the Bible says that after Adam fell, he died spiritually. He was separated from God. He lost his place with God. Now he's not dependent on the information that he receives from God because God stops walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden. Now he's left to learn the same way that man learns today, and that's through his five physical senses. So he traded divine knowledge. He traded divine revelation and wisdom for the knowledge that comes through your five physical senses. And you can well imagine that he was at a great disadvantage. Now the Bible says that that uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan is the God of this world. What does that mean? It's easy and I've made this mistake before. And I've got to tell you folks for many, many years I gave the devil too high a place in my thinking. Because I was thinking that Adam was made literally the God of this world. I don't mean God as in... Um, the God of the heavens, but God as in the ruler, the one who has authority over the earth. And that he lost that and Satan became the God of this earth. In a sense, that's true. But the way I was thinking about it, I was giving the devil much more credit. I I came away with the understanding and it built a stronghold in my thinking that I had to tear down that the devil had a lot more power than he does. What does it mean for Satan to be the God of this world? The word world in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 means age. It means age. Satan is the God of this age. He's not the God of the earth. He never became the God of the earth. What happened when Adam fell? Well, what happened was the system changed. The Bible says, even under the old covenant, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth didn't come into, Adam's, into uh, Satan's possession. It belonged to God when Adam was here. It belonged to God after Adam fell. So he can't be the God of the earth. So what's he the God of? He's the God of the system that controls the earth. The only thing that changed was the system. Man did not lose his place of authority. He didn't lose his original purpose. God's purposes don't change. God made man, put him here on the earth, gave him dominion. 
He still had dominion after he fell. But now he's operating through a broken system. Now, how in the world is Adam supposed to exercise dominion? Well, if he's made in the exact duplication of God's kind, that means he's going to operate the same way that God operates. And what does the story of creation tell us about how God operates? Through his words. Through his words. If man is made in the image of God, if he's made after God's kind, if he's made an exact duplication of God, then the only way for him to exercise authority here on the earth, I'm talking about before the fall, according to God's original creation, his plan of creation, was through his words. So what happened? Well, in the original system, before the fall, whatever Adam said came to pass. And the reason for that is everything that he says is a product of his heart, his spirit, the real man. And so he's speaking based on the knowledge that he's received. The only knowledge, the only source of knowledge he had was the word of God, what God said. So he's speaking in line with the knowledge he's received, speaking in line with the word of God. So his words come to pass. It's interesting that the Bible says that God put Adam in charge. He made him to have dominion. That's the same thing as saying, if you have a problem down here, don't come to me. You fix it. He didn't put him here on the earth to report what was going on. He put him here on the earth to have dominion. In other words, you're the one in charge. I've given you the authority. You take care of things. Don't come to me with your problems. Not because God didn't care, but because he entrusted man with dominion over the earth. Adam didn't lose that dominion. We see in the Old Testament that the Bible says again and again, things like Deuteronomy chapter 30, I've set before you this day life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. Well, if Satan's the God of the earth, how does man still have a choice? If Satan's in charge, then why did God tell man, choose life? What changed when Adam fell? What changed was the system whereby before the fall, everything Adam said was pure. Everything Adam said was in line with the word of God because that's his only source of information. After the fall, now he's getting information from his five physical senses. He's got to weigh out the difference between what he learned from God's word and what his five physical senses are telling him. One of the first things we see that happens with Adam is that he hid himself. He saw that he was naked and he was ashamed. What gave him that information? God even asked him, who told you you were naked? Where'd you get that piece of information? Well, the answer is obvious from his five physical senses. Before that time, every bit of information that he had, every bit of knowledge that he had came from the word of God himself. So where was God's original intent? Concerning God's original intent, what does God want us to learn from? His word, not not our five physical senses. After the fall, the system changes. Now his mouth doesn't just produce good. Now his mouth produces evil too. And remember the tree that he was commanded not to eat of is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Before he ate of the tree, before he disobeyed God, he only knew good. Now he knows both. How does he know both? Because his words produce blessings and now they produce curses too. That's how Satan is the God of this world, folks. He's the God of this world in an attempt to influence you, to influence you, to use your words, your authority, the dominion that you still have as a human being, contrary to God's plan for good and blessings. Now turn with me to Mark chapter 4. 
Mark chapter 4, Jesus gives what I believe is one of the most comprehensive explanations of the kingdom of God of anything that we have. Now, what does it mean when we talk about the kingdom of God? Well, in, in the most simplistic form, the kingdom of God would have to be identified as the place where God rules, the place where God's in charge. Now, where would that be? Well, in the original creation, you'd have to say that everything God created at the end of the sixth day where he looked at it and he said everything was very good, that's the kingdom of God. It's what God has created. It's what God has made. It was according to God's plan. Everything is perfect according to God in the way God envisioned it, the way God spoke it into being. Everything is perfect. There's nothing that can hurt man. There's no thorn growing anywhere. There's no weed growing anywhere. There's nothing that can be a curse or a detriment to mankind in any way whatsoever. And that's what the Bible identifies as the kingdom of God concerning the creation of the earth. He puts man in charge of it. What's his purpose in putting man in charge? Keep it this way. Keep it this way. Not make it something that it's not. Keep it the way that it is. Dress and keep the garden literally means guard and protect it. Well, if there's no enemy, if there's no adversary, what's there to guard and protect it from? There was an adversary here on the earth already. God knew that. I'm sure Adam was smart enough to when he was being told, dress and keep the garden. He's saying, wait a minute, you're telling me to guard and protect this place. Against what? And then the knowledge that came from God's word would have identified there was an enemy there. It's going to try to take this from you. That's why the fall, when I get to heaven, I want to see the videotape of the fall. Because in some ways, just knowing what we know now from the scripture, not even having experienced it and having been there, the fall seems like such a, a, it's hard for me to believe that man fell. If he knew what we know now, why in the world would he fall? Why in the world would he not have used his authority when Satan first showed up instead of considering the the tree like Eve did and so forth? Why didn't Adam just say, you're the guy that God told me about? Why don't you get out of here and be gone once and for all? He had authority. He could have done it. And what would we have if he had? Well, we'd still be in the Garden of Eden trying to keep the women from messing things up. (laughs) That'll get me in trouble later. But God had a better plan. Notice I said better, not different. He had a better plan because God living in us through Jesus is better than anything Adam had when he was there in the garden. It's hard for us to comprehend that. Now, Jesus tells us a story in Mark chapter 4 about the sower sowing the word. He taught them many things, verse 2, by parables and said unto them in his doctrine. This is his teaching. This is what he's trying to get people to learn and understand. Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundred. And Jesus said unto them, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he's saying there's a lesson to learn here. You need to find out what it is and pay attention to it. When he was alone, verse 10, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable. And he said unto them, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. 
But unto them that are without, outside, all these things are done in parables. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Most translations translate this word mystery as either secret or secret things. Unto you it is given to know the secret things of the kingdom of God. The secret things of the kingdom of God. Why are the, why are the things of the kingdom of God secret? Because man tries to understand them through his five physical senses. And you can't. Jesus talked about, or Paul talked about by the Holy Ghost. He talked about things that are spiritually understood. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, because the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God, are spiritually discerned or understood. Spiritually discerned. Spiritually discerned. It's so funny because people that don't believe in the things of God, they mock those of us and act like they're the ones that operate on facts. They take things like the creation and they say, well, that's just ridiculous. Do you know what the scientific teaching is on the creation of the universe? It comes down to this. 14 billion years ago, there was nothing. And out of nothing, there was a big bang. And that big bang created all the stars in the sky and all the suns and the moons and planets and all the other kind of stuff out of nothing. Now, nothing could have caused it because there was nothing here. Now, since there was nothing here, it couldn't have been planned. So it had to be random. Now, do you know the difference between scientific theory and scientific law? There are five things, five things that make up the requirements for a scientific law, the law of science. One of those is it has to be repeatable. See, we know that gravity is a law of science because every time you drop something from your hand, it goes down. It works every time. There's not sometimes you let go and things float. It works every time. So we understand that that's a a law of science, physical science, a law of nature. So since there was nothing that was here, the theory is that nothing created a big bang and that big bang created everything, not chaos. That big bang created something that, that developed into life on the earth. Now, scientists will tell you, well, there's no proof of God, so he doesn't exist. However, those same scientists will say, well, there is no gene that, that points to homosexuality as an innate characteristic or alcoholism or anything like that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't one. We just haven't found it yet. The odds, statistical probability that something could be created out of a big bang that, that was created by nothing is so infinitesimal that it's laughable. There's a better chance of your son or daughter going into the room and throwing a hand grenade in the room and coming out with everything in perfect order, clean as a whistle. That's true. The statistical probabilities are better with a hand grenade in your kids. See, the lack of proof of God doesn't mean there is no God. It means man can't find him with his five physical senses. And that's all it means. It means God can't be found with his five physical senses. Well, duh, the Bible tells you that already. You don't even have to experiment. The Bible tells you that the things of God are spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. So Jesus is saying unto you is given to know the mystery, the secret things of the kingdom of God. Let me read this to you from the Amplified. Mark chapter 4 verse 11. 
And he said unto them, To you it has been entrusted the mystery of the kingdom of God, that is, the secret counsels of God which are hidden from the ungodly. But for those outside of our circle, everything becomes a parable or indistinguishable. Now, what is Jesus saying? He's saying to understand this parable is to understand everything. As a matter of fact, he goes further in verse 13, and he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? How then will you know all parables? In other words, he's saying the key to unlocking this parable, this story that he told about farming that represents the kingdom of God, this story, understanding this story, is the way to understand everything about the kingdom of God. Everything. You won't be able to unlock any other parable if you don't know the truth of this. If you don't understand the secret things that are in this story. Now, what does Jesus tell them? Well, the first thing he tells them is in verse 14, the sower sows the word. Now, how do you sow words? The the picture is a, a farmer planting seed into the ground. How do you plant words? Well, what are words for? They're for speaking. So when he says the sower sows the word, he's talking about the sower speaks the word. And notice he says in verse 15, and these are they. These are they by the wayside. Verse 16, and these are they likewise which are sown on on stony ground. Verse 18, and these are they which are sown among thorns. Verse 20, and these are they which are sown on good ground. So what's the ground? The ground is people. So the, the, key, the first keys to the story, the first keys to the parable is that the sower speaks the word and he speaks it into or to people. And different people produce different results. Now Jesus goes further and he explains other things about the kingdom of God. He says in verse 26, Jesus said, so is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God rules. We could say in our application that the kingdom of God is everything Jesus purchased for us. The kingdom of God is not the earth because the system has changed. The earth is the Lord's, but the system that controls the earth isn't his. Jesus talked a lot to the disciples and to the Jews about their words in Mark chapter 12, or Matthew chapter 12, excuse me. He says, how is it that a tree, tree meaning you people, the same mouth produces blessings and curses. He said either make the tree good or make it evil. He said a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. In other words, a good man will speak good words and get good results. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil things. Evil men, men operating contrary to the will of God, bring forth or speak evil words and bring forth evil results or evil fruit. That's what Jesus is saying is going to change for the disciples through their relationship with God. So Jesus says, talking about this parable, how the kingdom of God works, verse 26, he says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Now, what's the ground? The ground is the hearts of people. What's the seed? The word of God. How do you sow the seed? Through speaking. So let's substitute these things to understand what he's saying. So is the kingdom of God. You want results from what Jesus purchased for you? Here's how to get them. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should speak the word into his own heart. You want to receive something Jesus has done for you? Speak the word of God concerning that thing into your own heart. 
One of the greatest controversies about this so-called word of faith movement, I like what Brother Hagin used to say, is there is no word of faith movement. Faith's not a movement. It's acting on the word of God. Faith is present every time the word of God is preached, which tells you why there's so little faith in the earth. Because man's preaching his own ideas. Man's preaching uh, Reader's Digest sermons. He's preaching doctrines of men rather than what the word says. And you start preaching what the word says and talking about the importance of your words and dominion that we have here on the earth and so forth, and you'll get a lot of criticism. And it's easier just to avoid the criticism. It's easier just to preach what everybody says is is good and acceptable. It's easier to preach that God brings tragedy into your life and there's some purpose for it, but just hang in there. Someday when you get to heaven, you'll figure out what that was. That's much more widely accepted than the fact, the reality that man has authority through his words. And there's not a whole lot of people that are willing to swim upstream because it is an upstream swim. But it's the truth. So Jesus says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should speak the word of God into his own heart. Notice what the result is. And he should sleep and rise night and day, which means you're not going to get results overnight. May take several days, may take weeks. It's a process. Takes time for things to grow. And should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should spring up. The seed meaning the word should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. You don't have to know how it's going to work for it to work. Well, if we don't know how it's going to work, how's it going to work? By you speaking the word into your own heart. Skip down with me to verse 30. And he says, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? What's the kingdom of God like? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which is when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. The kingdom of God is like a seed. What do you do with the seed? You plant it. What good is the seed if you don't plant it? None whatsoever. But the kingdom of God is like a seed. When it is planted into the earth. Is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs. And shoots out great branches. So that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. I'm going to read to you from uh, Luke chapter 17. I believe Jesus was consistent in the stories and the illustrations that he gave. He's talking about the grain of mustard seed in one place, and he talks about a grain of mustard seed in the other place. I believe those are connected. Luke chapter 17, Jesus has just talked to the disciples about forgiveness, and they said in verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. Verse 6, and the Lord said, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed. Now, remember, he said the kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds. But when it is sown in the earth, it becomes one of the biggest things around. It produces fruit much greater than itself. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say, the word might is in the King James. It's literally the word would or will. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say, under the sycamine tree, be plucked up by the root and be thou planted into the sea, and it should obey you. Now, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus said that's what the kingdom of God is like. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said that's what faith is like. So there's got to be a connection between faith and the kingdom of God. Well, what's the common denominator? What's the, the, the commonality between the kingdom of God and faith? Speaking the word. What can we define faith as, in other words? Speaking the word. What can we define the kingdom of God as? Speaking the word. See, we've made faith, we, 
meaning some people. I don't think I have. I'm trying not to anyway. But some people make faith such a ritualistic thing. They make faith such a hard thing. Oh, you've got to do everything just right. No, you don't. You just have to speak the word. You just have to speak the word. Now, this is what, the, the, what man was created to do. This is the dominion that God gave man when he put him in, on the earth. And God's plan didn't change because Adam messed things up. Man still has dominion on the earth. How does he have dominion? Through his words. But the devil deceives mankind into thinking that your words don't mean anything. He deceives you and influences your word through circumstances and feelings and so forth, teachings and other things. He tries to influence your words to such a degree that you're speaking contrary to the will of God, speaking contrary to the blessings of God, and your dominion, your authority expressed through your words brings about the very thing that you don't want, which is a curse instead of the blessing. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. I know we've covered all these things before, but I just felt impressed in my heart this morning to tie up some loose ends. I'm frequently accused of going too fast anyway. So for those of you that didn't get this the first time we covered it, Matthew chapter 8, start reading with me in verse 5. It said, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, please notice the time that he uses, that the word talks about what he says, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof, But speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. It doesn't take you coming there. It doesn't take your physical presence. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now why in the world? We don't have record of anybody else saying that to Jesus. Why would this guy take that position? He's not a religious man that we know of. Uh, One of the other gospel accounts. uh, I think it's Luke's account. Says that the centurion had helped the Jews by building him a synagogue, building them a synagogue in the city of Capernaum. And that was one of the blessings of Abraham. Remember God said, I'll bless those that bless you. This is why Jesus is willing to go to this guy's house, even though he's not a Jew. He's shown a kindness to the Jews. And so he's eligible. He qualifies for the blessing of God because of what he's done for them. But the man says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed. Now, what in the world would cause this man to take this kind of position? Jesus coming to your house would be a great honor if you believe in him. If you expect something of him and his ministry, which is the whole reason why his word was sent to Jesus on behalf of the servant anyway. Why does he not want Jesus to come to his house? What's he trying to keep Jesus from coming for? Notice what he said. Speak the word only and my servant shall be healed for because I am a man under authority. Now stop right there and understand that the only conclusion we can draw is that the man understands that words carry authority because he's also under authority. He understands how authority works. He understands how authority works. Back up to chapter 7 real quickly. We'll come back to this. Back up to chapter 7, the last two verses of the chapter. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the sayings, the teachings that that, uh, uh, are recorded just above this is where Jesus talked about the storms of life coming. Some people fall because of those storms. Other people stand through them. 
And the difference is being a doer of the word. Building your house on the rock. On the word of God. As opposed to building your house on the sand. Living according to the word of God. Kind of going back to Adam's position. Letting your information be gathered through God's word. Rather than your five physical senses. The man whose house falls. Is operating according to his five physical senses. That's the sand. That can't endure the storms of life. But the man that builds his house on the rock is the man that lives according to the word. So it says, and when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at him being the son of God. Notice it does not say that. folks. It says the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at his teaching. They weren't astonished at him because he did great miracles and signs and wonders. They were astonished at his teaching. What was so special about Jesus' teaching? That caused the people to be astonished. Verse 29. For he taught them as one having authority. Now if you stop right there. And not as the scribes. If you stop right there. And just take the King James for it. You'll have to conclude. That just the same thing. The translators must have concluded. That Jesus showed himself to be somebody that had authority. So they were astonished. At Jesus showing that he had authority. But if that's the case. Why are they astonished at his doctrine? It's going to take a little bit further. Study. You're going to have to go a little bit deeper to figure out what's being said here. If you take this apart, notice the word one is in italics. If you're reading with the King James, that means the translators added the word. It's not there in the original Greek. For he taught them as having authority. As having authority. The word as is not a common conjunction or preposition or whatever the word would be in in grammatical terms. The word means how. The manner to. The word having is the word it means has a meaning of to hold. Literally, this says in the original Greek, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them how to hold authority. And not as the scribes. That makes sense. That makes sense why they'd be astonished at his doctrine, at his teaching. If he's teaching them how man exercises authority. Back to the centurion. The centurion says, speak the word only and my servant shall be healed for I am a man under authority. Having soldiers under me and I say to this man, go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said unto them that followed. Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. Up to that point in time, maybe throughout his whole three years of ministry, but up to that point in time, the early part of his ministry, Jesus had not found anybody that was aware of or a keeper of the law of Moses that had anything close to this kind of faith. Now, what gave this man this kind of faith? Did he have such a great knowledge of the law of Moses or the prophets or the the things of the old covenant? No. What gave this man this understanding? And let's say it this way. This man unlocked the keys Or the secrets of the power of God. What was it that enabled him to unlock those secrets? To find out, discover these secrets so that he could have access to the healing power of God. He understood how authority works. What did he understand? He understood that authority works through words. He understood that authority is expressed through words. He understood that authority is exercised. Through words. And what did God put man here on the earth to do? 
to exercise dominion through his words. This man has figured that out. We don't have any record that he's a Jewish proselyte. We don't have any record that he goes to the synagogue. We don't have any record that he reads the law of Moses daily. We don't have any record of any of those things. But what he does understand through his life experience is that authority is exercised through words. And that's the same thing that Jesus is astonishing the people by teaching them. It's the expression or the exercise of your words that reveal the authority that you express, the authority that you use. It's through your words, folks. It's through your words. Your words dictate what you have in life. What you have right now is a result of the words you've been speaking. If you don't like what you've got, change what you're saying. If you like what you've got, keep saying it. Let me close with one final scripture. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writing to the church toward the end of his life. was inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us a great truth. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace is the finished work of Jesus. It's everything that belongs to you because of what Jesus did. But grace goes a little bit further. I'm, I'm uh, uh, guilty of, of sometimes leaving this part out. Grace is not just the result of what Jesus did, but it's um, intended to show God's willingness to provide that for you. See, Jesus didn't just come to die for mankind. Jesus came because God was willing to provide a sacrifice for mankind. So grace is the willingness for God to use his power on your behalf as obtained by Jesus' resurrection. Notice what it says. It says grace and peace are multiplied to you. God's willingness to use his power on your behalf is multiplied. It increases exponentially it increases it's multiplied the peace of god is multiplied that means you can have greater or lesser doesn't it that would have to mean that grace and peace are multiplied be multiplied unto you how is it multiplied through the knowledge of god and of jesus our lord now what good does having greater knowledge of god do it shows you more of what god has provided for you so that you can access it through your words verse three according as his divine power hath given, past tense, already been done, hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you realize all the prayers that the church prays about God? I don't understand why you're letting this happen to me. Are wasted prayers because God has already given to them all things that pertain to life and godliness? It's a wasted prayer. God's in heaven with his hands raised saying, why don't you get in the word and find out what I've given you? When the church is down here saying, oh, God, give us the strength, I've already given that to you. Oh, God, give us the answer, I've already given you that too. Oh, God, give us the means of escape, I've given you that too. Oh, God, give us healing, now, that was part of it. So much of the church, maybe 90% of the prayers of the church are wasted prayers because they don't know from the word of God. They're going by the five physical senses. They're gaining knowledge through the realm, the natural realm around us and the doctrines of men rather than knowledge from the word of God, from what God says, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. 
according as his divine power hath given unto us, already done, all things that pertain to life and godliness. How does that come? Through the knowledge of him that has called you to glory and virtue. Through the knowledge of him that's called you to to glory and virtue. Whereby, to this end, because knowledge is the way that grace and peace are multiplied, knowledge is the means of access for all the things that have been given to you through the resurrection of Jesus, sacrifice, and his resurrection, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. Now, folks, he's not saying by these you can get saved. He's writing to people that are already saved. He's not talking about salvation. He's saying that by these you can be partakers of the divine nature. All the things that Jesus purchased for you. The healing that was a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. The material provision that was part of the redemptive work of Jesus. The blessings that were part of the redemptive work of Jesus. The answer for any problem you've got that was part of the redemptive work of Jesus. To make the point, I sometimes say about the only thing in life Jesus didn't redeem you from was persecution. Everything else is pretty well covered by the blood of Jesus. So if the problem you've got is anything other than persecution, it's part of the all things that pertain to life and godliness that have already been given you. Well, what if it is persecution, Pastor Mike? God's grace is sufficient for you. His willingness to show his power on your behalf will get you through that too. But you can't pray that away. That's what Paul's thorn is all about, folks. That's why Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because he's being persecuted. He's being beaten up and thrown in jail almost everywhere he goes. He says himself, it's the messenger of Satan. He knows it's not God's work. It's the devil's work against him because he's preaching the gospel. And he prays three times, Lord, let this thing be taken from me. And Jesus basically says, these are my words, not his. But he basically says, I didn't redeem you from persecution. In fact, I said to you that those that persecuted me will persecute you also. And those are the very ones that are raising up trouble against Paul. But don't worry, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, the finished work of Jesus, and my willingness to use my power on your behalf will get you through. And it did. Whereby are given unto us, to this end, to the knowledge, to gain the knowledge that brings us into all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How are you going to take hold of the truth of God's word to get you through your problem? Through the exercise of your authority. Same way the centurion said, speak the word only, my servant will be healed. Speak the word only and my finances will be met. My needs will be met. Speak the word only and my problems will be solved. Speak the word only. Why? Because man exercises his authority. Jesus said, whatsoever you speak in my name, That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Folks, your answer is no further away from you than the Word of God being in your heart and in your mouth. Your problem is not because the devil is doing some big thing against you. If there's a problem in your life, it's about two inches below your nose. It's in your own tongue. It's in your own words. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the authority that you've given us. Thank you that you created us to have authority here on the earth, and that authority is exercised through our words. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to speak your word. 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. The secrets that so much of the world misses out on that are so simple and right in front of us. Thank you, Father, that the whole of the kingdom of God as is, is as if a man should speak the word into his own heart and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed would spring up, he knoweth not how. Thank you, Father, we don't have to know how the answer comes. We just have to trust in your word. Father, we've spoken your word for healing. We've spoken your word for our finances. We've spoken your word for the will of God to come to pass in our behalf. We've released our faith unto you, Lord, and now we trust in your faithfulness. We trust in your faithfulness. We trust in you, Lord. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, real quickly before we go this morning, I want to give an invitation for people to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. If there's anyone here that cannot point to a time where you know that you know that you know that you ever made Jesus your Lord, where you ever made a confession for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to receive his sacrifice for yourself personally, I'm talking to you. The Bible says that by grace are you saved through faith. God's willingness to use his power on your behalf is accessed by your faith. Jesus explained and described what faith is. Faith is speaking words to receive the promises of God. So here's what it takes. Paul said by the Holy Ghost, writing to the church, that if you'll believe in your heart that God sent Jesus to the earth, that he died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And if you are willing to confess with your mouth, use your words to declare Jesus as your Lord. See, that's how you exercise authority to come out of spiritual death into eternal life, through your words. It's not something the devil can do. He can't stop you from it. It's not something God can do. He can't make you do it. It has to be your choice. And that choice to exercise your authority is expressed through the words of your mouth. Jesus said, if you'll confess him as Lord and Savior, you shall be saved. Not might. It's a guarantee. So heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking around. If you're here this morning would say, Pastor Mike, I want to pray that prayer. I want to make that confession to make Jesus the Lord of my life once and for all. I want to know that when my life is over here on the earth, I miss hell and gain heaven. I want to know what it is to have eternal life now. To have that relationship with God. Where he's leading me by his spirit and ordering my steps. I want to know what it's like to be free from the guilt and condemnation of my own actions here on this earth if that's your desire i'm going to ask you just to raise your hand by raising your hand you're not joining the church by raising your hand you're just simply asking for prayer we just want to know who we're praying for so that we can pray with you and show you what the bible says about what to do so that you can leave here a new person a new creature in christ jesus a new creation through the work that jesus has already accomplished anyone anywhere Pray for me, Pastor Mike. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Anyone, anywhere. All right. I trust that means we're all part of the family of God then. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's end with a confession. Raise your hand toward heaven and close your eyes because that's where your help comes from and make this declaration. 
I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he died on the cross for me. And was raised so that I could have a place with the Father. Because I am saved. I declare that God has given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. Therefore, I declare healing is mine. Financial provision is mine. Divine direction is mine. I say that everything I put my hand to prospers in Jesus' name. I say that the life of God flows through my veins, renewing every cell and permeating every fiber of my being to restore me to divine health from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. I declare that I am led of the Lord. He always shows me what to do. He always orders my steps. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the same works that you did here on the earth, the Holy Ghost does through me now. In Jesus' name, amen.